So if you have your Bibles and want to go ahead and turn to Ephesians, that's where we're kind of going to be camped out today, kind of, but we're going to be jumping around to a few other passages as well, so um, don't get too comfortable in Ephesians, but that's where we're going to get started as we begin today. So we're uh, on week two this week of our series on discipleship, of uh, living the Christian life, as you see, walking in the truth is the name of our series, and it's a series on discipleship, and if you were here last week, you remember Matt talked about maturity in Christ and what it means and really what is ultimately the goal of discipleship, and that is to become mature in Christ Jesus, and that is a part of the process uh, of discipleship, of maturing in Christ. So today, as we, uh, as we jump in and as we move forward with this series, uh, we're going to be talking about the topic of learning, of knowledge, of understanding as a part of the process of living in the truth, of living the Christian life, of discipleship. So I was, I'm, was I was preparing this week, we're going to be in Ephesians 4, by the way, Ephesians chapter 4 is where we're going to be. Uh, but as I was preparing this week and I was thinking about um, what it means to have knowledge and have understanding and to study God's word, uh, I was reminded of a story of uh, whenever I was in college, I was at this party and it was not like your typical college party. It was a college party with primarily Christian people. Uh, it was at someone's house that was a part of one of the campus ministries. And the majority of the people there were from various campus ministries. We did this kind of stuff somewhat regularly where we would all get together and we would fellowship. And we would use it as an opportunity to bring unbelievers uh, and let them come and fellowship with us and, and with the hopes and, and opportunity to share the gospel with them. And, and we did get the opportunity many times uh, specifically, there was one instance at this party where uh, myself and another guy named Jesse, who's an awesome dude, loves the Lord, um, he and I were sitting at uh, a table with um, a couple other girls, and they were uh, international students. They were unfamiliar with the gospel. They were somewhat familiar with Christianity and, and certainly had a lot of questions. And what really that allowed for me and Jesse to do was it allowed us great opportunities to share the gospel with these girls. They were extremely um, interested in what we had to say. They were asking questions. They were posing objections and challenges. And, uh, and myself and Jesse had the opportunity to, to share the gospel with them. And, and apparently, and I didn't really notice it uh, at the time, but apparently he and I had very different styles. Um, I was explaining the gospel to, to these girls, and I think probably just the way that I normally do, I uh, when I think of the gospel and the impact it has on me, I think about uh, what it means that God is a holy God, that he is just, that he is righteous, and that we are utterly sinful human beings, right? And that because of our sin, we're separated from God, and we're faced with this challenge of how wicked sinners can be uh, united and, and stand before a holy God, and how Christ, by his work on the cross, has imputed or given to us his righteousness so that we can now stand before God justified. I mean, that is kind of, really, if, if you've ever heard me talk about the gospel, that is kind of the language I use when I do it. Um, but apparently, Jesse was, was talking in kind of different language, not bad language, not wrong language, but different. And I know this because there was another girl who was from a different campus ministry that was there kind of just watching this whole thing unfold. And I remember after it was over, she said to me something that really kind of stuck with me, kind of struck me in a, in a weird way. She said, it was interesting listening to you guys talk to these girls because Denton spoke and sounded like a theologian. 
while Jesse spoke and sounded like an evangelist. And I was really struck by that. Um, and for a minute, I like, I mean, not a minute, for a while, I went home that day thinking that maybe I had failed in some way. That was I not being evangelistic? Was I, does Jesse have, did he have or portray more of a heart for seeing these people come to faith in Christ than I did? I didn't want that to be the case, but I, I almost felt like it was a, a bit of an indictment on me. And I don't think she meant it that way at all. I really don't. Um, but what that made me realize, and, and I would also argue that Jesse was uh, quite theological in his understanding and in the way he presented himself, though uh, maybe he did uh, try and relate to these girls on more of a personal level. I don't know. But I remember the more I thought about that and the more I, I tried to understand what she meant, I really felt like this girl had a bad understanding of what it means to be uh, an evangelist and also what it means to be a theologian. Uh, and ultimately, what it means to live a balanced Christian life, I would say. Because the reality is that I think that all evangelists should be theologians. And I think all theologians should be evangelistic. I think that the two go hand in hand. If you're truly going to share the truth of the gospel with somebody, the good news of Jesus Christ, you have to know what it is and understand it, right? In order to be able to share it effectively and correctly. And if you're learning the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, learning who God is, studying theology, I can't imagine any other recourse that would lead you to but to tell the world about it. I mean, it's what we're commanded to do, right? And this kind of leads into uh, to my title for today, which is theologian is not a scary word. Theologian is not a scary word. I think for most people, this word theologian or theology, it it brings up in their mind and in their thoughts um, men like Augustine or like John Calvin or Martin Luther or Paul, perhaps. These great men of the faith who have done things that are so amazing and so awesome, and, and we kind of view these men as theologians, and we put them on a pedestal up separate from the rest of us, as though that is what it means to be a theologian. It means you look like John Calvin, uh, and you write all these, these great writings or that you preach like Jonathan Edwards and that thousands and thousands come to faith in Christ when you preach the word of God. Or like Paul, that you are used mightily by God to write all kinds of books of the Bible. But I think the problem is that we then create this idea that that pedestal is what it means to be a theologian. And I think we lose our understanding of what it means to truly practice theology and we lose our understanding of what we are called to as believers. I mean, the word theology means the study of God, right? That's what it means. Theo meaning God, ology meaning study of, the study of God. So my argument today is that, and this is my main idea, is that any Christian who desires maturity in Christ must be a theologian. And all Christians should desire maturity in Christ. And for our text today, we're, like I said, in Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to read verses 17 through verse 25. Let's read. Paul says this to the church in Ephesus. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as Gentiles do, in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, due to their hardness of heart. 
They have become callous and have given themselves to sensuality, greedy, to, every, to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have learned or that you have heard about him and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus. To put off the old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupted through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth speak with excuse me, speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. So our text today, I think, um, is going to help us see my main idea. I'm going to say it for you one more time, that any Christian who desires maturity in Christ must be a theologian, and all Christians should desire maturity in Christ. I, I don't know if you see what I just did there, but I left you no out, right? If you are in this place today and you saw your, call yourself a Christian, you should also be a theologian. That is my premise. That is my thesis statement, if you will, because all of us should be desiring maturity in Christ. And as we see in our text today, when Paul describes the new life of the believer, we know that new life in the believer begins really with a new understanding, revelation of who God is. When we have, by the power of the Holy Spirit, our hearts changed, our eyes opened to the truth of the gospel, and when we truly understand who God is and know him truly, that is when new life begins. New life begins with new knowledge and right understanding of God as he has revealed it to us. It doesn't come by our own efforts, but it is still a new understanding and a true and right understanding of God. The first time you understand rightly who God is and who you are in relationship to him, that is when new life begins. And when we respond to that by crying out to God for mercy and for grace. Notice the contrast that Paul makes in Ephesians between what he calls here walking as the Gentiles, uh, what we could say is unbelievers. Paul contrasts those in the old life, unbelievers, the lost, versus those who are living the new life, believers, those who are being saved. And the difference as we see here is that those who are unsaved are walking how? In the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding. They are ignorant. They have hardness of heart. Whereas those who are living the new life we see here are renewed in the spirit of their minds. They have a new understanding, no longer walking in the futility of their minds, but having their eyes opened to the knowledge of who God is. The new life of the Christian begins with knowledge, but it also doesn't stop there. The more we desire to grow in godliness, the more we must be knowing who God is and studying him. The more we must be doing the practice of theology. The main thing that we're going to be seeing here today is the importance of knowledge, specifically the knowledge of God. And we're going to look at three main ideas surrounding knowledge and looking at a few different texts. We're first going to see the purpose of knowledge then the priority of knowledge, and then the value of knowledge and what it means in the life of the Christian. Those of us who are living the new life, those who have been regenerated, those who desire to grow in Christ, 
must obtain and center our lives around knowledge of God. So first, let us consider the purpose of knowledge. In Titus chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, we see Paul giving his introduction to uh, Titus in the church there that Titus is working with. And he says this in Titus chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which, which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested his, in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of our Savior. As we see here from what Paul is saying in writing to Titus, we see a bit of the, the purpose of knowledge. The purpose of knowledge, the purpose of practicing theology is to form the foundation for Christian living. This comes through also in our text in Ephesians, but it's what Paul's talking about here in Titus. As we see, as he opens in verse 1, he says, uh, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their what? Knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. So Paul makes a close connection here between knowledge of the truth and godliness. This should lead us to a couple of conclusions, mainly that without knowledge of God or knowledge of the truth, there is no godliness. There is no godliness apart from knowledge of God. Much to our chagrin sometimes, I know myself, and I think a lot of us in here would probably say that we wish godliness was easy. We wish that it was easy to be formed into the image of God. We wish that it was easy to uh, to be like Jesus Christ and like he behaved and acted and the things he did when he lived on this earth, but it's not. And we know here from this text that unless we are studying who God is, coming to the knowledge of God, unless we are practicing theology, godliness will forever be a challenge for us. It will always be something that we struggle with. And this makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, we can think of even like real-world practical examples of this because no one who desires to be a great plumber never learns anything about plumbing, right? In fact, what is it that, that is required in order to become a, a great plumber or any trade, really? It requires knowledge, right? It requires knowledge of maybe the math and the science behind the work that you're doing. It requires knowledge of, of uh, maybe types of materials and, and this and that. But the primary way that people become great tradesmen, whether plumbers, machinists, uh, electricians, whatever, is by practicing underneath someone, right? Seeing what they do, learning from them. How is it that they have become so great and let me do what they do? In the same way, if we are going to become more godly, if we're going to grow in godliness, become like Christ, we have to be learning about Christ, about who he is and who God is. That's what the purpose of theology is. It is to be the foundation of the Christian life. It is to lead us to godliness. So, uh, theology, knowledge, should lead us to godliness. We also need to make a note of what the purpose of theology is not. And the purpose of theology is not to be a tool to help you win debates and arguments. Sorry, men here in the room, if you're anything like me, I know that that is oftentimes the case with me where my desire to study theology is 
far too often motivated by a desire to be able to win an argument or prove my side is right. I mean, just recently, I was having a conversation with Robert and Aaron and Jacob about uh, the special gifts, gifts of the Holy Spirit. And we didn't agree on all of it. And I remember leaving that place and going, I'm going to go read something about the Spirit and, and his gifts. I'm going to read like John MacArthur, because I know he's smarter than Robert. And so Robert could not argue with that. And, and that's honestly, like that was my heart as I, as I left that conversation. I was like, I want to go and I'm going to build my argument so that I can destroy him next time. And he will see why I'm right. right? But that's sinful, right? We know it is. Yeah, <laughs> it is. Thank you, Robert. It's sinful. And, and what my motivation was in that moment was pride, right? My motivation for wanting to study theology was not to be more godly. In fact, it was kind of the opposite. I was using it for the wrong reasons. Now, that doesn't mean we shouldn't know the truth. That doesn't mean we shouldn't be able to give a defense for good and right doctrine and theology. But if every time you go to God's word, you have someone else in mind and an argument that you're looking to destroy, you're always going to be frustrated in your study of God's word. And you're going to miss the glory of God as he has revealed himself in his word. Because you're going to be distracted by these other things, sinful things, lesser things. Don't do that. Not only does the knowledge of God, when studied correctly, when done properly, result in godliness, but the spiritual fruit that is gained from it is, that is gained is hope. We see this again in, in the passage in Titus that we read, where Paul says, uh, he says, for the sake of the faith of God's elect, their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness. And then he says, in hope of eternal life. In hope of eternal life. The more we know God, the more our hope is built in the eternal life that we have in Jesus Christ. In the finished work of atoning for our sins that God has done in Jesus Christ. This gives us then a picture of, of the purpose of theology in the life of a Christian. Next, we're going to look at the priority of knowledge in the life of a Christian. The priority of knowledge. And for that, we're going to turn to Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. This is a very well-known passage in Acts. If you've studied Acts or are familiar at all with the book of Acts, uh, this chapter as a whole is the, the chapter where the Holy Spirit kind of enters the scene in a dramatic and an amazing way as, as this is the uh, day of Pentecost, and then Peter delivers this amazing sermon to the people there. And at the end of all that, we see at the end of the chapter, in verses 42 through 47, this beautiful picture of what the church looks like right now at the very beginning, right after Pentecost. We see this, 42 through 47 of Acts 2. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Many people read this section of Acts 
chapter two, and get so enamored with the parts about the signs and wonders that were being done by the apostles, right? And they're just amazed at this. Or, or at the distribution of all of their goods for the sake of each other, so that there was none who had need. Or the daily worship and the breaking of bed and bread and the fellowship in their homes. And all of that is amazing and it is beautiful and it is good. And we as the church today can learn from all of that. But the problem is so many times people catch all of that and, and dive into that and are, and are impacted by that. But we miss the very first and most important part of this passage where Luke, when he writes this, says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. That is the starting point for the church at the very beginning. They did not start with, uh, hey, let's all run around. They did not start with, let's eat. They started with the teaching of God's word, the apostles' teaching. The same is true for the church today. That the starting point for the church is the teaching and the understanding and the learning of God's word. You see, the study of God is not optional for the Christian. It's not optional. It's commanded by God that you know him and that you learn of him and that you study who he is. In fact, Jesus said in Matthew 22, verses 35 through 7, when he was uh, asked by a lawyer, it says this, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment of the law? And he said to him, You shall love your, the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. With all your mind. With our understanding. With our knowledge. We are to be learning about who God is. We, we are to be engaged in our mind with the study of God's word, with theology. It is not something that our mind is absent from, but rather something that the Lord tells us, with all of your mind, be learning about who God is. Be loving him with your mind also. And many people who call themselves Christians are in churches today and are actually not worshiping God, but rather they're worshiping something else. What many of these people in churches today end up worshiping is their own emotions rather than the God of the Bible. And you see this coming out in all kinds of ways. For example, how people choose which church they're going to go to and attend. Or perhaps what kind of worship music people will, will sing and listen to. I mean, when you just consider both of these, if you talk to people in many churches today, in fact, in the kind of churches that uh, Matt talked about last week, these weak, these spiritually immature churches who are devoid of good doctrine and faithful teaching, when you ask people, why are you going to church there? What, what caused you to go to church there? You'll get all kinds of answers, but I guarantee you answers that you'll get are, well, I just really feel good whenever I'm in there. Uh, whenever the pastor speaks, oh, it just, it just makes me feel all warm and cuddly. When we consider the worship music that we listen to, what is it that drives us to listen to that music and to want to sing that worship music? For many, it's, well, because it makes me feel good. Because when the lights are dimmed down and, and the guitar is playing and we're on like, you know, the third bridge of that time, like I just really feel it, you know? And very little explanation beyond that is given many times for why people choose the things that they choose. 
what is oftentimes absent from a person's choice and where they're going to go to church is what is that church teaching? What is the doctrine like? Are they encouraging theology, the study of God? Are they, or are they simply encouraging an experience and producing that for people to come and enjoy and get the, the emotions that they're hoping for? And I want to be clear here, and because I, I know what kind of the, the, the pushback to this is going to be, and I am not trying to say or indicate that emotions are a bad thing. On the contrary, I can say with confidence that the more that you engage in the study of God, the more you engage in theology, the more your eyes are opened by engaging with God's word, the more your whole person will be overwhelmed with joy and with amazement at the thought of God's redeeming work. The more we study theology and study God, the more amazing he becomes to us. The more we become engaged in all of our being, including our emotions. I can also tell you that many of the songs that we sing here at Redeemer Fellowship Church on Sunday mornings regularly bring me to the verge of tears on a regular basis. And it's not because Robert's fingers are fire that day on the guitar or his voice is silky smooth, though mostly it is. He's really good. We're blessed in that way. But it's not because of that. It's because the truths that are revealed through the songs that we sing resonate deeply with the truth of who I know God is. The lyrics move from my lips and my ears to my head and my heart, dialing in and building upon the knowledge of God that's already there because of his word. In fact, the more we learn of God, the more beautiful things become and the more our emotions are stirred by the songs that we sing and the liturgy that we hear. Just consider, for example, I can just go through a few of our songs and give you examples of this. The more we learn of the holiness of God, the more the song before the throne fills us with amazement. As we consider standing before the throne room of a holy and righteous God and have no plea save one plea, and he is a strong and perfect plea, the great high priest whose name is Christ. That's amazing. The more we learn of the immutability of God, of his unchanging nature, the more that the song Jude doxology fills us with hope. When we sing and remember Jesus brought you out of Egypt, remember Jesus brought you through the Red Sea, he has saved you as his people. The God that brought the people out of Israel and saved them from slavery is the God that is caring for us and leading us today. It fills us with hope. The more we learn of the perfection of Christ, the more the song, O sacred head now wounded, fills us with grief. When we consider the perfection and the holiness of the Lamb of God that was slain because of our sin. He was perfect. He was righteous. He never did anything wrong. Even Pontius Pilate says, I find no fault in this man. Yet, he was crushed for our sin. The more we learn of our sinfulness, the sinfulness of man, the more the song we sang today, His mercy is more, comforts our heart. We know our sinfulness, and the more we understand it, the more we are amazed at the mercy of God in forgiving us. Because no matter how much we sin, guess what? His mercy is more every time. The more I learn of the sovereignty of God, even as I consider 
all the hardships and tough times that may lie ahead, I am brought peace and comfort by songs like, Oh God, that we sang last month, or The Solid Rock, or Guide Me, O Thou Great Jehovah. Because these songs resonate with and remind me of what I already know to be true of God. The more we educate ourselves in the knowledge of who God is, the more the songs that we sing, the liturgy that we do, the sermons that we hear will pluck at those heartstrings and produce in us godly and right emotion. If you have no emotion to the responses, to the response of these truths, that's not normal. It should produce in us an emotional response when we consider what it is that God has done in redeeming us. When we consider who God is. I promise you that in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 2, with all that was happening going on in the early church, there were many emotional times for those people. There were many times when emotions ran very high. But their emotions were not the starting point. What was the starting point? It was the study of God's word, the teaching of good doctrine. This was the starting point for them. This was their central focus. This was uh, their goal, was the study of God's word. The teaching and learning of sound doctrine was the starting point for them and is the starting point for us today. If we desire to grow in godliness, to be mature in Christ, to be discipled, we must be studying God. This speaks to the all-encompassing nature, nature of redemption as well. That God redeems every aspect of humanity, including our emotions. So that emotional responses in worship are good and are beautiful and are a right thing, but only so long as they are preceded by and accompanied with right knowledge and understanding. Finally, we look and we see the value of knowledge in Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3 says this in verses 8 through 10. Paul writes, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, having not a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Did you hear there the value that Paul places on the knowledge of God? He says, when I consider the knowledge of God, and then I consider everything else, and I weigh those two out, the knowledge of God is of such great value and such great importance that I consider everything else nonsense, rubbish, loss. It's all garbage compared to the worth of knowing God, of studying theology. This is the enormous value Paul places on the knowledge of God. And then in verse 10 he says, uh, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. You see, the new life of the believer is one that recognizes this truth that Paul is stating. The value of the knowledge of God 
Our hearts have been enlightened. Our eyes have been opened to see the goodness of God and understand him properly and rightly, unlike those who still walk in the futility of their minds and are lost. More than that, we now can understand the great value of understanding and knowing God and practicing theology. But the question is, do we? When we consider what Paul says about the knowledge of God and the value of it, we want to say that. We want to resonate with that. We want to say, yes, it is that valuable. Yet so often with our actions and with the way we live, what we say instead is, well, it's not as valuable as my time watching TV. Or it's not as valuable as uh, my time working. Or it's not as valuable as this or that. And we end up prioritizing other things over the study of God as though they have more value. And that is simply not true. William Tyndale was uh, one of the great reformers in the 1500s. And he was most famous for his work in translating the Bible from Greek to English. You see, because at that time, under the, uh, the rule of the Roman Catholic Church, uh, it was improper, it was against the law of the Roman Catholic Church for anyone to read the Bible on their own. They did not want people reading God's word because it was their belief, it was their uh, declaration that people on their own were unable to understand the word of God, that they would misinterpret it, that they would get it wrong if they were allowed to read it for themselves. Therefore, they needed the Roman Catholic Church in order to interpret it for them, and they were therefore not allowed to read it. It was discouraged. William Tyndale, recognizing the folly of this, the sinfulness of this, and recognizing the problems with the Roman Catholic Church, took it upon himself to, to remedy the problem and to uh, translate the Bible from Greek to English. And in fact, he did a really good job of it. In fact, so many years later, when the King James Version or the Authorized Version was produced, as they were considering, like, what is the proper English translation of these Greek words, Greek phrases, Greek ideas? Nine out of ten times, not nine, eight out of ten times, they decided that William Tyndale and his translation had it right. Isn't that amazing? Like this one guy versus all of the people involved in the King James Version translation. They decided that he was right the way he translated it. Eight out of ten times. He set his, his uh, uh, intentions so firmly upon putting the Bible in the hands of the people in their common tongue to where they could read it and understand it was so great that he even gave his life for it. Ultimately, after translating God's word into the common English tongue, William Tyndale was burned at the stake. And the way they would burn people at the stake in this time was, was graphic. They would not just, just put them up there and light them with fire, but they would uh, also add gunpowder to the mix to literally blow the person up. And in many cases, they would wrap the gunpowder around the person's head so that as the flames rose, it would reach the gunpowder and, and, and just blow their head off, literally. Very graphic, very terrible, and that was what became of William Tyndale. But he made this great quote before he died as he was doing this work and, and had this desire to translate the Bible into the language of the people. He said, I defy the Pope and all his laws. If God spare my life ere many years, I will cause a boy that driveth the plow to know more of the scripture than he does. 
William Tyndale said, it's my desire that even a, a lowly plowboy, by the time I'm done, if the Lord permits, even a lowly plowboy will know more of the scriptures than the Pope does. Isn't that amazing? He gave his life for this purpose. He felt so firmly, so uh, intently, so passionately the importance of the knowledge of God and knowing him truly and rightly for who he is, that he was willing to die to get God's word into the hands of the people. And now, where do we stand today as believers? Do we place this kind of value on God's word? I would argue we don't. I would argue we don't place the value on studying God's word. We don't place the value on theology that we should and knowing and seeing and understanding God truly. And yet that is the starting point for our discipleship. This is what it means to live the new life. It means to live with a renewed mind. Again, Paul says in Ephesians, to be renewed in the spirit of your mind and to put, off the, and put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. This is the only way that it happens is if we begin to see the value of knowing God the way William Tyndale did, the way Paul did in Ephesians. This is the way that we will grow in godliness, that we will grow to maturity in Christ. And I know the problems. I know the struggles that it is to read God's word, to study God's word, to study who God is. Because I will stand up here and admit to you right now, I hate reading. I hate it. I do not enjoy reading at all. It is a drudgery for me. It is something that I have to force myself to do. I enjoy the benefits from it. I enjoy learning, but I hate reading. And so for me, a lot of times it just comes down to discipline. I just have to force myself to do it. But there are ways that we can encourage ourselves and encourage each other to be studying God, to become theologians. One of the most encouraging kind of, um, I don't know, phases of life that I'm in right now, one of the most encouraging things that's, that's happening for me right now is I once a week get to sit down with Elijah Hargett and we just open up God's word and read it. It's extremely simple. We just open up God's word. We've, we've read 1 John now. We've read Romans. Now we're reading uh, the book of Acts. Who knows what we'll do next? But we don't do anything crazy. I don't prepare for us a, a, a lesson, spend three hours studying. No, I come with my Bible. He comes with his, and we open it up. And sometimes we'll read up to six or seven chapters. Sometimes we'll read two or three. And there's a lot to talk about in those two or three chapters, and that's all we get through. But you know what we're doing? We are together theologizing. We're studying theology. We're doing what we have been called to do as believers. And it is that simple. And I think Elijah would be okay with me opening this up. If there's anyone here today that is like struggling to read God's word and is like, I would benefit from that, me and Elijah would let you come and join us reading God's word. We're not stingy. It's not some exclusive club. We would love to have you come join us and read God's word with us. If you want to, come and talk to us. But if not, find someone else that can encourage you. Find someone else that you can read God's word with. Maybe you read it separately and then you come together and talk about it. Maybe you text each other passages to read back and forth. I don't know. But listen, we're called to be theologians, but we're not called to be theologians alone. We're called to do it together, to study God together. He has equipped us for the task by the Holy Spirit, and he has given us the church in order to empower us to do it. Let's do it. Don't be scared by the word theologian. I think we should start calling each other by that title. I think we should start calling each other theologians instead of brother or sister. Maybe not. Maybe that's a dumb idea. But 
I would encourage you, the next time you're reading God's word, like recognize that what you're doing is you're studying theology. You are a theologian as you have been called to be. Embrace that, enjoy that, and, and exercise that to the glory of God. Let's pray. Lord God, we are so blessed to have your word that we can hold in our hands, that we can read for ourselves. You are, we're so blessed that you've given us the Holy Spirit that we can understand your word, that we can read it and see who you are truly. Lord, we no longer are living in the futility of our minds, but we have had our eyes open to the truth. Lord, let us not forsake that truth that we have come to know. Lord, I pray that we, as believers in here, as we seek to be mature in Christ, as we seek to become uh, disciples of you, Lord, I pray that you would grow us. Move us from the spiritual milk of your word to the meat. Lord, I pray that we would never think of ourselves as, as too dumb to study theology or that it is too hard or that it is for people who are much smarter and wiser than us. Lord, I don't know why we would leave something to other people that is so good and so enjoyable for us. Lord, let us take up the mantle of theologian. Let us bear it with, uh, with excitement and with joy um, and with pleasure, Lord, that we get to know you as you truly are. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.